And to confirm, does everyone see kilobytes counting up? Yep. I see numbers getting bigger. All right. Great. They're getting bigger pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. That's maximum quality for you. We have to ask this every time for very good reasons, because trust me, we have recorded episodes in the past where we've misclicked that record button and <laughs> bytes were not counting up. And we just talked <laughs> mm-hmm. into a non-recording microphone for a while. It was great. Yeah. You know, it, it's understandable when you click away that first click back doesn't actually click the button. Yeah. It selects the window. So mm-hmm. yeah. So really, it's Apple's fault if we're yeah. really getting down. Get open a ticket and they'll <laughs> prioritize accordingly. Yeah, I'm not an idiot. It's Apple. Yeah, design a better operating system, yeah. Apple. <laughs> Golly. Welcome to episode 354 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got another interview today. I feel like we didn't have interviews for a long, long time and then two almost back to back now. The dry spell has been broken by <laughs> two interviews. Uh, <laughs> we got a good interview today. We are talking with Yitong Zhang, who is a designer at Coinbase, but we're talking today about the visa process, which this is a topic that has not been on the show at least with this much depth before. So uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, but before we get into it, uh, we got to shout out our golden ratio supporter, Float. Float is resource management software for planning your team's time across multiple projects. It saves your team time so you can get back to doing what you love, which is designing, making things. You can learn more about how teams in more than 150 countries around the world use Float for their resource planning at float.com slash design details. Thank you, Float. Thanks, Float. We also have some new... VIPs, very important pixels this week. Yeah. A uh, huge shout out to our new supporters Hugo, Simon Erickson, Sungpil CO, Max Rudberg, Jose, and Ada Z. Ada Z. Holy shit. Amazing. Okay, this person's name is Ada, A D A, last initial Z. Yeah. Ada Z. I love it. God, we got we got That's another so one. So good. Right. We every week, Brian. Every single week. Uh, yeah. I love it. I love it so A much. It reminds me of, um, uh, do you know Jason Mraz? Yes. He had an album called Mr. A to Z, which I always thought was really clever because his last name is M-R-A-Z, and he called himself Mr. A to Z. Isn't that clever? Oh. And also serendipitous for a last name and someone who's lovely. You know, yeah. Play. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyways. Anyways, uh, as is tradition now, uh, number two for our interviews, the sidebar for today will be some bonus questions with our guests. Mm-hmm. So if you are a supporter on Patreon, uh, you're going to get the full interview. And if you're not and want to hear those bonus questions, go to patreon.com slash design details. For just a buck a month, you can support the show. Your support goes directly to uh, making this show possible, paying for the software and and the tools that we use. And in return, you get access to the sidebar, which is a weekly segment. Uh, Usually it's, it's, I don't know, a a cool things, but design specific. So resources, links, stories, that kind of thing. But on interview days, it's bonus questions. So head to patreon.com slash design details if you want to hear our full interview today. And with that, let's get into our conversation with Yitong Zhang. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Yitong, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you here. Nice to be here. Long time listener, yeah. first time caller. Hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, nice. For people who, who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I guess, how would you intro yourself to uh, a stranger? Sure, sure, sure. So I am a product designer in SF, working at a company called Coinbase. So 
the TLDR on Coinbase is that it's a bank for crypto. And so I've been a designer for, I don't know, a while now and have worked at various agencies. I've had my own startup for a while and now find myself kind of like working for a, for a big company. How's that going? That's, uh, it's going fine. Um, I knew I had like one big company experience in me that I wanted to try. And this was sort of the one. And I'm glad that I'm doing it and I'm learning a lot. But this is probably my last company, uh, big company experience. I don't think I'm particularly cut out for this kind of lifestyle. Oh, doing well. fine. And, uh, you know, if like 10 years later you find me working on Google, you can call me out on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will. But, well, first of all, I would say big company is all a matter of perspective. I don't know how big true, Coinbase true. is, but um, yeah. certainly a, a growing company. But are there particular things about it that you don't vibe well with? Oh, to be clear, like... Working in Coinbase is pretty chill. I mean, like for like a company of like a thousand something people, it's pretty chill. I just, I think for context, like I got into design, like doing like fan art for anime, you know, and it's like, then it's like, okay, then like doing stuff for like my own company. So that was kind of always been a little bit my vibe and the kind of stuff that I wanted to work with. So it's not that I don't, that I like particularly dislike working at large companies. Like it's like everything that it advertises is true. And everything that is about it that's good is true. And everything bad about it is true. And I don't think this is sort of like very unexpected for most people. It's just like kind of like I knew what I was walking into. And I knew that this was going to be like a thing that really I wanted to do for like a few years of my life. But it's like long term never really been the thing that I wanted to do. So if you if you had to envision what the next thing is, is it starting another company or you would just want to go back to something smaller? Yeah, I think it's starting another company. Okay. Any ideas yeah. on your mind? Yeah. Um, man, there's a couple of spaces I'm thinking about. Immigration is one of them. Housing is another one of them. Uh, this is all super early. I'm going to like throw out a bunch of ideas and then like probably look really stupid uh, because they're all kind of like early things. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. So like stuff like that. I'm really interested in also like I think the uh, like whole remote work situation. And I, I know that a lot of people are working on tooling to make remote work better. But I'm sort of interested in how like this whole remote work thing affects the structure of like how we organize companies and teams and what like software opportunities there are there. Um, not in terms of like collaboration, but in terms of like how teams are put together. Um, so that's kind of like the, the three spaces that I, I'm, uh, I'm interested in. But I'm not trying to quit anytime soon. So these are all kind of like ideas, like slow simmering in the back of my mind. I see. Okay. Well, I, I want to see how those evolve. Do you imagine you would start like a, I don't know, a product studio kind of model where you could try ideas across those three areas and see if anything sticks? Or are you going to just go one by one and kind of go all in and start three different startups until, <laughs> oh, I guess yeah. until one of them works <laughs> out either way? No, I, th I think I have to pick one. Mm. Um, I think I have to pick one and just go in, all in on it. And then like, hopefully it like is the last thing I do and it works out really well. And I'm doing that for like a long time afterwards, but there you go. yeah, or it does so well, you don't have to do it for very long. <laughs> I mean that too, <laughs> but, uh, I think it always takes a little longer and then like most people like make it out to be. So I'm kind of, kind of ready for this to be like a five to 10 year thing. Well, it's, it's relevant that you brought up immigration as, uh, one of the areas that you're interested in because it's kind of the topic that brought us together for this call. Um, yeah. We've seen the, oh, I don't know, how do we even start here? The political landscape, the legal landscape around immigration, especially in the U.S. and uh, specifically around visas that impact people working in tech, like the H-1B, which is a very common sort of tech worker visa. A lot of stuff is changing there. And so uh, you reached out and just mentioned like, hey, 
this is an interesting topic because it affects so many people, but you mentioned that, you know, in your experience, not a lot of people actually know what's going on. You have to actually pay quite close attention to the news and kind of dig into these stories to see how the visa process is, which are already complicated, how they're evolving. So maybe to kick us off, like what's going on in immigration land for you? Like which parts are interesting? And then how are you thinking about what's happening in the world today with some of the proposed legal changes and and what's happening to H-1B holders. Yeah, okay. That sounds great, like a great way to start. Full disclosure, I am not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I do not provide good immigration advice. Uh-huh. Um, I provide some context, not all context. So do your own research, please. Don't take anything I say as like anything remotely reliable. I'm just here to try to inform um, based on my own personal experiences. Good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that aside, okay. Man, immigration is complicated. There are people who are highly educated called lawyers who like do this professionally. I think it's pretty it's pretty hard for most people to keep up. I think you're right. And what's happening right now? So I, I, let's just start from the top, right? Okay. So what is what is a work visa? Okay. So if you're not a citizen or a permanent resident of the United States, you need permission from the U.S. government to work here. Pretty straightforward. And that permission is a visa. There are all sorts of different visas that people get to work in the states. Probably the most popular one among them is the H-1B. Um, the H-1B is sort of like the general one for like highly skilled workers that a lot of people in Silicon Valley work here on. But also there's a bunch of other ones. Um, so some of your friends might be on the J-1 if they're like a little bit more early in their career or the F-1. Some of your friends from Australia might be, I believe, on the E-3. Those are like a tr- uh, visas for Australian people um, under a special treaty. Or if you're like me and you're Canadian, you might be here on a, a TN visa. So there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but all of this sort of like gives you the uh, permission to work in the in the states with various restrictions. And the restrictions vary pretty wildly depending on the visa you get. Uh, some of them are far more restrictive. Some of them are like far more free. But generally, I think uh, the reason we're, why we're here to talk about this is that like um, there's been a significant curtailing of visa issuance and general um, immigration policy in the last few months. Right, right. What changed? Let's see. I think this started roughly in April. Before April, there were um, there was there was like rumors of things going to happen, but it wasn't the first official word was April. When I believe green cards were suspended for people who were outside of the United States. And also this like suspension came with the sort of like warning slash like foreshadowing of like a potential wider restriction for more work visa categories. And for uh, green cards, for those of you who don't know, is like the permanent residency, uh, I guess, permission uh, in the United States. It's like the big one. It's like a lot of people are working towards that. That's like the one step before citizenship thing. Yeah. Okay. So so what happened after? Um, in June, we saw what was basically, uh, I think people call it the H-1B ban, uh, although it bans a couple of other things. I think it bans J visas for interns and L visas for internal transfers and a couple of other ones as well. And this basically means that for people who are outside of the U.S. trying to come work in the U.S., it's pretty much not possible anymore. So if you're in France and you have an offer from Google, it just doesn't work anymore. Um, And I don't think it's going to work for the duration of this policy. Um, It doesn't affect people who are in the country, though. As far as I know, this is like as far as I know. Um, So for most people who are in the country, they can't leave the country anymore, um, or it's super risky to leave the country. But like, if they're still here, they're not getting like uh, deported or anything. Well, we'll dig into one thing there, because 
this has been eye-opening for me, just getting to know more and more people who are on visas, is this idea of leaving the country. Like Once you get in and you have your H-1B, it's great, but there is significant process and just emotional overhead to actually leaving the country and knowing that you're going to be able to come back in. So how does that work with like leaving and re-entry and then the, the renewal process? Yeah. So... Let me talk about how it works under normal times. Let me talk, talk about how it works right now because it's okay. super bonkers right now. Okay, so under normal times, depending on the kind of visa that you have, every time that you re-enter, leave and re-enter the United States, you know that like immigration line, like when you fly back and you're at the airport and it's like U.S. citizens this way, like tourists and foreigners this way, and then visa is the other way. Mm -hmm. So you go through the visa line. And at the visa line, there is a immigration officer there who like checks your paperwork. Um, and depending on the kind of visa that you have, there is a leeway that the immigration officer has on like judging whether you are within the bounds of your visa or if like your visa was done properly. So they, they can like with a degree of leeway, depending on your visa, like uh, give you a hard time at the border. I've personally had a couple of experiences at the border as a TN visa holder where they're like, hey, you know, this like, are you a designer? Like, what tools do you use? Do you know Illustrator? Because oh, I wow. hear people use Illustrator, which is pretty bananas, right? Because like, this is some person in the, like immigration who's like, talk to me about Illustrator. And yeah. I was like, oh, well, I use Figma, but <laughs> let me talk about Illustrator because that like you asked about that and I don't want to be in trouble. Did they ask you if designers should code? <laughs> oh, Jesus, man. They would have gotten a really long take, and I think I probably would have been asked to leave yeah. the country. <laughs> uh, hey, that's kind of a, that's a nice sort of little border entry question for designers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. It's like the, uh, the top questions, like, should you be a manager? Should designers code? Uh-huh. Uh. Nah. Okay, so, so normally you come back through, they check your paperwork and decide yeah. if you're within the bounds of your visa. That's right. So they give you a little bit of a hard time if you know they're not in a, they're in a bad mood, but it's not too bad usually. Um, so what's happening now? So now if you have a valid visa stamp in your passport, you're technically allowed to leave, but most immigration lawyers, um, at least at Coinbase and probably like in, a, in most other companies too, are advising against people leaving for fear of policies changing. And like, to be clear, like, policies that people didn't think were going to change have changed like three times in the last six months. Right. So at this point, people are just like, look, you might technically be safe to leave right now, but don't. Right? Just like for your own safety, like and for the safety of your family who might be like potentially depending on your visa, like, just don't leave. And if you don't have a visa stamp on your passport that is currently valid, either because your visa stamp is out of date, which like might not necessarily mean that you can't work in this like country. It just means that your like stamp is out of date. You just like straight up can't leave. And if you leave, you can't come back. So that's kind of like the situation that a lot of people are in right now. So like if you're a visa worker, then by definition, you have family outside of the US. And like since we're all experiencing COVID together, you might want to hang out with your family, which is no longer a thing that is advisable to do these days. Yeah. So there's the policy part. And then there's just like the actual human part of this, which is yeah, you want to go and visit your family, but you can't because you're not sure that you're going to be able to actually come back in. Yeah. yeah. So my, my girlfriend right now, like her family is in China and like it would be really great if like she could go visit her family right now, but it's just not certain. And so we're not we're not making any moves. We're not coming. We're not going to see my family in, China, in Canada. We're not going to see her family in China. And this is probably going to last for as long as the current administration is in power. 
can you explain a little more? Because I, I know that this impacts leaving and coming back, but there's also quite a bit of nuance here about if you have a work visa in the U.S. and then you end up getting married and having kids and you have a family here, but your family members could be on a different visa and there's like different working restrictions. And so there's also, it's not only this fear of like a single person leaving and coming back, yeah. but it's a person with a family leaving and not being able to come back to their family or yeah. or they lose their visa, which their family depends on. How, how does that whole family interdependency work? So quick caveat before I, I go on. I don't know anything about dreamers, dreamers or refugees. I mean, like, I know as much as most people do from like reading the news, but I think there's a whole really important and separate story happening to dreamers and refugees in this country that I'm like super, super not qualified to speak to. Not that I'm particularly qualified to speak about like visas for tech workers also, but like at least I know that from a personal experience, but this is not about that. Okay. So I think what we're trying to talk about here is like if you have a visa and you have family and you're like potentially a tech worker, like what happens, right? So most visas come with some stipulation for your spouse. So on a H-1B, for example, you can be a H-1B spouse, which would give you the ability to be in this country and like have a certain like rights. And if you are a E-2 spouse, so if that, that's another visa that you like are allowed to be in this country and like have certain rights. And so like not only are people thinking about their own situation in the country, they have to think about their spouse if their spouse shares their visa. So for example, for my girlfriend and I, like we have to think about like, okay, if I quit my job somewhere in the ne end of next year and like I want to start a company and now I have to like choose the visa that I would like to apply to start the company under. Uh, and there's a, probably a couple of options available to me. And so I have to think about like, all right, well, given the current state of immigration in the U.S., what considerations do I have for like my girlfriend who potentially might need a spousal visa down the line if the H her H-1B lottery doesn't come down? And I, there's like that kind of like three-dimensional chess that you have to play with like both your relationship and your immigration status hmm. um, in a country, which is kind of also tricky. Could you say more about, there, there's two things there. One is the lottery system. I think maybe not everyone's aware of how the lottery works. And I guess I'm not even fully aware about like how the numbers shift and and how that whole process works. There's So there's the lottery, but then we should talk also about switching jobs because once you have an H-1B, there's still additional restrictions about uh, there's switching jobs, certainly, but then there's side projects and like working for yourself and kind of restrictions all the way down. So maybe let's start with lottery and then go on to the other part. Yeah, totally. Okay. So for those of you who might have heard about this lottery, there is a cap to how many people can be issued a H-1B every year um, in the United States. So what you do is you enter a literal lottery. And then like you hope that you will be selected to be issued a visa. And if you don't, it's a yearly process. So you have to try again next year. Many people who try for a lottery are here on some sort of like internship visa or a student visa. So this is what like that happened with my girlfriend. She did her master's degree here and then started working under what is called a OPT. So I think that's like opportunity for like practical training or something, which basically like if you do an advanced degree in the US, you get to have a certain amount of time and the time can be shorter or longer depending on uh, whether you're working in STEM or not to like work in the States. But that's like a temporary author authorization. So during this time that you're allowed to work in the States temporarily, you have to try for the lottery every year. And hopefully you get the H-1B lottery, which means that like after that, you are allowed to work for as long as your H-1B is valid, which is much safer than your, your temporary visa. And if you don't get the, the lottery, then you're like, 
kind of like shit out of luck and mm -hmm. you have to like figure out something. So that's the lottery. So what happens then if you want to switch a job? You have to find an employer, first of all, who is willing to sponsor an H-1B. So not all employers are willing to do it. In tech, I think there's this assumption that the, a lot of the bigger employers are willing to do it. And I think that's broadly true. Well, can you explain more about what the sponsorship means? Because I think there's even some more interesting details there. There's like the cost, yeah. but also like there's just process and legal work. So how does that sponsorship process yeah. go? Okay, so I, I don't want to get super deep into that because I feel like I would like at that point be providing potentially not a super accurate picture. Okay. But like basically, I think what my understanding of that how that works is that your the company that is petitioning on your behalf has to file paperwork to prove some things to the government. Like, and I think that like among the things that they have to prove is sort of like, okay, you like will potentially, this is not going to compete with an American worker. And there's like a, a couple of stipulations like that. And I, I could be kind of like a little bit out of my depth here in terms of exactly what they need to prove, but it is like a non-trivial amount of things, um, both in terms of paperwork and cost that they have to prove. So that is like a fairly like significant burden on the employer, which is why only the larger employers are willing to do it. So if you mm -hmm. wanted to go work for like a four-person company, then they're like, well, that's kind of like a lot of overhead that we have to do and probably we're not going to do it. Right. Okay. So you get sponsored and then if you want to switch jobs, does that transfer? Can you just hopscotch that to the next thing and, and pick up where you left off or does the whole process restart? My understanding is that the, the H-1B, you can hopscotch to the next place with some caveats. I think what you might be thinking of is the green card process, which... Uh -huh. Yeah, you are not able to hopscotch so easily. We can get in. I don't know if you were asking about this, but um, for green cards, you have to start the process with an employer and like wait a significant amount of time with that employer before you are able to switch without losing your place in the queue to get your green card. And that has like a fairly long process. I think it's probably like a year to like a year and a half. That one's country dependent, right? That one's country dependent. So if you are Indian or Chinese born, AKA me, it could take you anywhere from like five to like 11 years, which like is Ugh. mega long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <so> like, <laughs> that's like three yeah. times as long as the average sort of job tenure in Silicon Valley. So right. That, at, at the lower that, end, right? Yeah. Which that is puts any insane. context around that, that yeah. length of time. So I think the, the thing that we're not talking about here that might also be interesting to like just mention is. What happens if you get laid off, mm. which a lot of people are getting laid off these days, right? So you have to pretty much like just take any job you get because there's like a certain period of time during which you're allowed to stay in the country after you get laid off. Um, this is like, again, like on a work visa, like the H-1B. And then you kind of have to find a new person to like sponsor your visa. And if you can't find a person to sponsor your visa, then you're, you're out, right? You're just kind of like done. And it's not a particularly long period of time. I think it's at most like a few months. So you don't really have time to run like a super extensive like search process, especially under COVID where like not a lot of people are hiring. And so you kind of just have to like go somewhere and just anchor there and like, ho like just like hope that they can keep your visa. And I think that's like a huge thing as well for people who are on visas right now is that they cannot afford to get laid off. Yeah. I mean, it's just like getting pressure from all sides, right? Like there's a pressure that around switching companies. And then especially if you're in the green card queue, like resetting your position in line. Yeah. yeah. I could imagine there's a feeling of perhaps being trapped within an organization. Like you've started the process yeah. and you just can't leave. Yeah. Then we have layoffs, which are like unforeseen circumstances and and the time pressure that puts on you. And then what we originally talked about, just this idea of should I go visit my family? Like should I go home? Will I be able to come back? 
And it just seems like these three things put a ton of emotional pressure on a person. So I'm curious how you're dealing with it. And then I've been watching your tweets and it sounds like you're talking to other folks who are, you know, dealing with this uncertainty. I'm curious what you're seeing from your side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the tricky thing about immigration and visa work is that it's a little tricky to talk about it in public because there is a significant amount of judgment exercised by the specific person at immigration who is processing your, your visa or your green card. And it's a little bit tricky to talk about in public because you never really know what that person might interpret what you say in public if there's a public record of it. Mm. So for example, like before coming on this podcast, I had to like email my lawyer and go like, okay, what are topics that are safe to talk about and what are topics that are not safe to talk about? Mm. And so that's kind of like the underground network of people like trying to like talk about these things without ever uh, really being public about it. People are trying to like talk to each other and figure out how this is going to work. For my girlfriend and I personally, that I think that's kind of like the, the personal effect on us is that we have to talk about marriage like far faster than we would have normally. Mm-hmm. And it's like part of me is like, okay, we're in like our late 20s and it's probably time to like think about this for sure. But also it's like it's a decision that you want to make on your own terms. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's like your, your your relationship with your significant other. It's like your future together. And it's like a pretty big decision that you probably want to make at a pace that makes sense for you and that makes you happy. But like I think what's happening to us now and to a lot of people is that you have to like think about it really seriously and very tactically in terms of like what that means for your ability to be together in this country. Hmm. Like some of the other tactical things that we're thinking about is like, okay, well, if I want to start a company, like I have to like shop for the right quote unquote shop for the like right visa to get this company started on. And it's like nor under normal times, it would just be like a question of like, what is the best visa for this? But now we also have to think about like, okay, so what if we're on like an H1B ban forever? And so she can't keep trying for the H1B. And then like, would I like, then like potentially we would get married. And then like, then we have to think about like whether my future visa provides like her with working options. And it's like, then you're like playing three dimensional chess again with like your relationship and immigration and like your like future like dreams of like starting something. And it's like, it gets like for like everything in your life eventually kind of just like bundles up into this like one messy yarn. Mm. And you're like, whoa, suddenly like immigration is like everything. And like visa work and trying to stay in this country is kind of like related to everything that you do. Yeah, it's just this perpetual concern that permeates every every decision that you make. It must be exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, I think the way, I mean, you guys work on side projects. You know what, what, is, what it's like to try to keep a thing like going for many years. I think the way that I've been most able to like describe my experience just like thinking through visas is that like, it is basically like a full-time side project. So I've like worked on like a bunch of side projects in the past Right, so I've done like a Figma plugin, and it's like, it pretty much takes the space in my life. It has the like exact shape of a site project, <laughs> <laughs> which is like a little absurd to think about, but it's like, that's what it is. It replaces a site project in my life, hmm. which like, we can also talk about that because that also has like three-dimensional chest tie-ins with uh, with the visa situation. Well, yeah, how does that work? What are the restrictions on, on side projects? Yeah, so most visas, you actually can't earn a income from anybody except the person who's sponsoring you for the visa, which is your employer. So for example, for me, I'm on a TN visa and I'm only allowed to get paid through my employer, which I am, but I also like to work on fun things, right? So it's like, I make a Figma plugin, I make a website that's like a, like a reference library and these things I give out for free, which like, 
okay, I like giving out things for free. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, but that's it's good. Like, good for us. <laughs> yeah. It's like free things are nice. And I like I don't mind con- contributing to that to like the design community with like free stuff. But at some point it's like, do you want the option of like potentially be able to monetize some stuff? You guys do like a Patreon thing. It's like that's nice. Um for me, that's not really an option. And for a lot of people who are working on side projects, that's not really an option. So you just kind of like give out things for free, which like kind of sucks a little, especially if you're thinking about eventually trying to start a company, you would like to start charging for some stuff eventually, mm-hmm. but that's just not a thing that I do right now. Are there different rules that apply if you were to formalize a side project and actually register a company? Is that a viable option or does that violate the, the visa terms? You can go for a entrepreneur visa. There's no like entrepreneur entrepreneur visa, but there's one where basically like you make a significant investment in a, in a company and then you really go for it like full time. I think you have to invest on the order of ish 100k. So that that at that point that's no longer a side project, it's like a main project, but that's the way that you would do it. And so there's really no sort of like transition time between like working for somebody and then hacking on something nights and weekends to, oh, that thing is kind of like taking off. I'm going to charge a little bit of money for it. I'm still working my job to like, oh, it's really taking off. I'm going to quit my job and do this. It's just kind of like you're doing it for free. And then if you want to, you can drop 100K and then like go for it full time. Yeah, which is <laughs> so many people have 100K lying around to just start a company. <laughs> right? No totally big deal. Viable. 100K, test the conviction. Do you uh-huh. really believe in your side project? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to make you commit one way or another. So yeah, yeah. You know, at, when we were talking on, on Twitter, you mentioned that you've encountered a lot of people who, I suppose, understandably, might not know all the intricacies of the visa process and what people who are on visas are going through. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've noticed other people surprised by that was surprising yourself? Like, oh, you thought this was obvious, but everyone you told it to was uh, amazed that something existed here. Like, what, what are you finding talking to other people? <laughs> yeah, I think I think people are like... If they have looked into this a little bit, they're kind of aware of the difficulty when you get fired or trying to find an employer. I think the thing that trips people up is usually like, oh, you can't work on a side project and charge for it? Hmm. Yeah, dude, I would like to charge for things too. But, you know, like everybody's getting stuff for free now, thanks to Uncle Sam. Hmm. Um, So that's kind of the thing that kind of surprises people. And I I think it's especially surprising to people who are the, the Silicon Valley, like entrepreneur type, where they're like, yeah, of course. The way that you start a company is that you like work on something on their spare time and you charge money for it. And then you're just like, oh, actually, that's not an option. Yeah, that's devastating. And uh, I mean, from my point of view, like the biggest problem with the whole mentality around the, the H-1B ban or restrictions is just it's trying to push this idea that there are X amount of jobs and one job that goes to an immigrant is a job that doesn't go to an American. Like it's a very fixed mindset. And that's just not true, right? Like mm-hmm. if an immigrant creates a company, they are going to employ people. Like we continue to create new jobs and new wealth by the virtue of creating companies and innovating and building new things. Mm-hmm. Really? And to restrict that process on this idea of, oh, well, we need to save jobs for, for Americans feels pretty counterproductive if the underlying goal is to sort of reboot the economy or or get people working again i mean this is kind of i I have two thoughts on this which is that like first on most of these visas and green cards that um are issued you have to do the specific work of trying to prove that this is not going to take away a job from the american right that's just kind of literally part of the process Hmm. not that we want to keep having that like fixed mentality conversation but that that is quite literally part of the process and the other thing is that like Dude, you're right. Like most of these, like a lot of the, the the big companies that you think about in Silicon Valley are started by immigrants. 
like I think for a while when the H1B ban was like happening, like all these tech CEOs were just like, actually, dude, I came here on an H1B. You didn't know, but surprise, yeah. like now there are 300 jobs uh -huh. because of me. Well, quote unquote, because of me and many other people, but it's sure, like, sure. that is like literally like a, one of the like best engines for job growth. And it's kind of like seeing that disappear is like kind of sad. Yep. What do you think are, are ways that this, some of these processes could be improved or or be better like what are things i don't know that a person like marshall or i could could be a part in to make these things easier um that's a great question the i think that there's the the stuff that you probably would not be surprised right by so i would urge everyone to exercise their rights as americans to vote and uh, vote in the direction that you think will make immigration better <laughs> um <laughs> yeah write to your legislators um, I've been told that this is surprisingly effective and it helps that like some person in your legislator's office can hold a physical letter and be like, people care about this. I cannot write to your legislators, so I cannot say that for sure, but I've heard that this helps. Mm -hmm. I would also say that there are also a lot of examples of visa and immigration systems that work well out there. My home country of Canada has like unsurprisingly reasonable system mm -hmm. so it's like a point system and like when my parents first immigrated to Canada that's kind of what they went through so right they're trying to rationally assess whether someone is going to be successful as an immigrant in Canada and then like there's like a there's like a set of like criteria and what they think is like a successful immigrant and I think it's the same thing for a visa worker where it's like okay you like speak the language plus five points literally points um you like have an advanced degree Okay, plus X amount of points. Oh, you did school in Canada a little bit. That's cool, plus X points. And if you have like mm -hmm. over this amount of points, you just like get the thing that you want, mm -hmm. which is like depending I think on the situation, either a permanent residency or like a, a, visa, a visa. And it's like if you were trying to rationally build a system that maximized the amount of really like smart people who are gonna come to, that, to a country and make a good impact, that's probably one way to do it. I mean, I love that framing. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we maximize the number of smart people who not only want to come here, but then are able to come here and, and make important changes in, in the way we, in our world, use technology and the, the tools we use and the things that sort of power modern civilization. So yeah, I think that's a useful framing. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's jump over to cool things then. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Sweet. My cool thing this week, I, I've loved watching people on Twitter ever since WWDC just cranking out resources uh, for the Figma community. I'm sure you all remember way a long time ago, I don't even remember which iOS version it was, but the Tehan and Lax oh, yeah. sketch files of all the UI kits. And and we've gotten the UI kit evolution every year. It's it kind of evolved from Sketch uh, at Tehan and Lax, and then it became a Facebook thing, and then it started migrating to Figma. Anyways, uh, Joey Banks, like I think within a couple days of DubDub put out you know, a work in progress iOS 14 UI kit on Figma. So that's my cool thing this week. I've been dipping my toes into that, just grabbing some quick pre-made assets with nice like uh, auto layout and things like that. So if anyone else is working in iOS and doing some iOS 14 early work, I'll have a Figma link in the show notes for you. That's uh, the UI kit by Joey Banks. That's funny you mention that. I have a, I literally have a tab open in the background with, uh, I, I just duplicated that <laughs> that file right oh, before this started. Oh, lovely. Yeah. There you go. All right, Marshall, what you got? Okay, uh, my cool thing is uh, at long last, at long, long last, it is available to us, uh, to us peasants, 
Hamilton with the original cast performance oh. is is uh, on Disney Plus. And if you've listened to the soundtrack a billion times as I have, then it's really cool to see actually see what's happening on stage uh, rather than just in the theater of my mind of like, okay, this is probably what's going on. I know enough about the characters having listened to it that like, okay, this is probably happening to actually see things like uh, facial expressions and just kind of like the blocking of how stuff is happening. Characters that aren't necessarily obvious that they're in the scene. Like for example, there's a song that um, King George kind of walks through, saunters through at one point that I had no idea and was a really nice surprise. But anyways, uh, if you weren't one of the very few people who were able to see the original cast performance live in New York when it was uh, when they were all together, this is a perfect opportunity. Uh, you can do a trial for Disney Plus if you want to and, and, and get to watch it. It's like a two hour movie and uh, the best history lesson you'll ever have. Love it. Nice. All right. Itong, over to you. Hit us. Oh, um, OK. I have been a big fan of people sharing their feelings on the internet. Um, I don't know if this happened over last week, but I've started noticing it last week. I think the two main things that I want to point people to is this essay by Ankit, I hope I'm saying his name right, called Being Alone. Okay. And also this blog post by Laura Deming about being sad. And just being able to talk very openly about your feelings on the internet is a skill that I would like to have. Hmm. Um, and I'm really inspired by people who do it with vulnerability and well. That's awesome, oh, man. I'm, I'm inspired by people who do that and uh, mustering the, the courage and confidence to do that myself is yeah. <laughs> asking a lot. Um, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, will you send me those links and we'll have those in the show notes? All right. Awesome. Well, Itong, thank you again so much yeah. for coming on and, and teaching us some some of the yeah. <laughs> the complicated world of visa work in the US. Uh, it is a messy, messy area. And, you know, I think as you pointed out, like the more people learn about how complicated it is, the more surprised they are about like, oh, this is what people are, are dealing with every day of their lives. So thank you for, for taking the time to share that with us. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the chance to come talk about this. Appreciate it, man. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I think that was a good interview. I didn't do much talking during it, Brian. I was just so captivated by the amazing questions you were asking and the amazing answers <laughs> that Yitong was giving us. Sitting back, absorbing the information like a listener yourself, Marshall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know very little about this stuff, so I, I thought it was best to keep my mouth shut. But I was here, and I thought it was a good interview. Yeah, it was great. Thank you again, Itong, for for joining us on the show. Yeah, uh, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please uh, tweet at Itong. We have his Twitter handle in the show notes. I'm sure he would really appreciate hearing from you that you listened and uh, hopefully learned something from it. So yep. tweet it, and uh, we would love to hear your feedback as well. You can tweet at us anytime. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter. If you're enjoying the show and wished you'd heard the full episode, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash design details for just a buck a month that gets you access to our weekly segment called the sidebar. And today our sidebar was some bonus questions during our interview. So it's patreon.com slash design details. Thank you again to our new supporters this week. We really appreciate it. It makes this show possible. Thank you. If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just Just like like you. you. Uh, Otherwise, we'll be on Twitter uh, thinking of topics for the next show. So if you have questions, you can always ask us there on our GitHub at github.com slash spec.fm. 
Yeah, we went uh, a little bit long in this episode because it's an interview, but uh, we do want to do some uh, follow-up on the iOS 14 or, or just the general Apple event stuff. So if you have more things to send us, we, we've already collected s- several uh, tweets from y'all, and uh, we'll talk about it more next follow-up. All right. Well, we'll catch you next week. Bye. And I'm mustacheless now. Have you noticed? Oh, no. I I guess I did notice. I was too focused on your hair just fucking billowing upward like Gohan. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's truly impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's... (laughs) Oh, listeners. I'm looking at Gohan Super Saiyan level two right now. Brunette. You remember Syndrome from the first Incredibles movie? Hang on. <laughs> Syndrome Incredibles. Oh, yes. Oh, like the main bad. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is you. Yes. This, okay. This um this is it. This is you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's what I've that's what I've become. Just a brown, not red hair. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing.